You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. For more information, visit www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So welcome everybody. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class and what that really means is I'm not going to be offering basic meditation instruction. I expect you already to know that. That being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, please feel free to ask whatever questions you want. I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm just not going to cover the basics. We have been talking about the Manual of Insight, which is a new translation by the Vipassana Metta Foundation of Mahasi Sayadaw's uh, a text on how to do Karnaka Samadhi. Karnaka Samadhi is a Pali word that means momentary concentration insight. Um, Samadhi uh, meditation, which is a concentration-oriented meditation, would be a, a practice where first you develop concentration and then you go into insight. In Karnaka Samadhi, you start with insight practice and through practicing insight develop concentration. The practice was really designed for householders so it seems like an appropriate practice to uh, instruct in. Um, We talked about some of the basics uh, around this, a purification of mind and a purification of conduct and we've been talking uh, for the last few weeks about a, uh, ultimate reality versus conceptual reality. Um, and what we really mean by that is that you're aware of the sensing experience, which is the ultimate reality, and then you're aware of what you make the sensing experience into, which is the conceptual reality. Can you be with the experience of sensing before you actually make it into something? And then can you be aware of the mind state that that operates between the sensing and the making the sensing into something that affects the interpretation of the sensing experience or what you make it into? Uh, Reading from the section of the book that's called Two Kinds of Insight, we're talking about appropriate objects for meditation. So when you come to meditation... You come for a lot of different reasons. Mostly people come in the West because of of suffering. Often they come because they've tried other uh, avenues to address the suffering and they find that they're still suffering and so they're looking for a remedy to that. Um, This uh, this text is really talking about uh, enlightenment as the end goal. And what you may notice in your practice as you begin and as it deepens that, that initial release from stress that you are seeking is easily obtained and maybe in the distance is happiness and then you pursue your practice and you find that you can come pretty easily into a place of happiness and then in the distance uh, from the from uh, conventional happiness is freedom you discover early that simply relieving stress isn't going to be enough to be satisfying and then you go for happiness and you find your happiness but then you realize also that that's unlikely to be enough and then as you move in the direction of freedom when you you do find 
freedom, uh, you realize that that will be enough. And that's kind of the energy that I think propels people in, uh, on the path. Um, but in the beginning, it's simply that desire to relieve suffering. And then as you get more into the meditation um, practices that you do, you uh, find that if there was some path or some map that might be useful. Um, this isn't everybody's approach, and there are a lot of different maps. The, the map that Mahasi typically uses is the 16 stages of insight, which is a Theravada map based on the four foundations, uh, the four-path model of liberation, which is based on the eradication of the ten fetters. Um, Mahasi is really talking about how to develop your practice so that you can pursue the path to liberation. There are two kinds of insight, empirical and inferential. Knowledge that is cultivated by empirically meditating on mental and physical phenomena is called empirical insight. One could be clearly aware of the unique characteristics and impermanence of phenomena via empirical insight. Insight meditators should develop empirical insight from the beginning up to the peak insight knowledge of adaptation, or uh, another word for that would be liberation. Every empirical insight, when it matures, is followed by inferential insight that extrapolates to phenomena that are not directly experienced from insight based on experiential phenomenon. So what we're talking about here is the difference between uh, the sensing experience and what you make the sensing experience into. Uh, that you, you, uh, you have awareness of the sensing experience and then it's made into something. Have you noticed that uh, uh, you're hearing me speak in English and that if you're conditioned to understand English that you've associated a lot of meaning to the different things that I'm saying? But have you also been aware of the vibration vibratory sound that, that that's being uh, communicated in. I am, I'm speaking in sound so that your sensing capacity first is for the sound, the vibration. Um, in the inner ear, there's a thing called a cochlea which uh, has a lot of little uh, fi- uh, filaments in it that vibrate depending on the frequency and that translates into an electrical energy that then the brain uh, decodes. If you're conditioned, you can recognize the pattern of that and make it into a word and then depending on how you've been conditioned to associate meaning to that word, you associate that meaning. That's inferential, the associated meaning, whereas the empirical understanding of the sensing experience is, is the mechanics of sensing. Is that making sense? Actually, it would probably be more accurate to say the brain encodes it. Encodes it. Okay. Um, initially, the, for the recognition of the pattern, However, insight that is inferential rather than empirical is is unable to experience the unique characteristics of phenomena. 
It is not necessary to deliberately develop inferential insight since it always arises by itself following every mature empirical insight. So from here on I will only explain objects of empirical insight. <clears throat> um, it is not necessary in some sense to pay attention to the content of experience when you're meditating. The, maybe another way to say uh, it's important to pay attention to the function of it but not necessarily the content of it this is seeing experience this is hearing experience this is feeling experience and they come together and form a con concept of what's happening in the moment um, and, and while that can be useful and engaging in terms of conceptual reality what we're attempting to do in meditation is not pay attention to that, but pay attention to the empirical experience of sensing. So when we begin to talk about what actually is important to pay attention to in meditation and how you can easily get caught up in the conceptual reality which won't bear the fruit of uh, practice that is described uh, in the text and also is going to take you down the path to liberation. Um, paying attention, are you in the experience of sensing or are you in the experience of thinking? Or are you in the experience of meditating or are you in the experience of thinking? In order to develop true insight knowledge, starting with knowledge that discerns body and mind, one should observe ultimate mental and physical phenomena and not conceptual objects. In addition, among ultimate mental and physical phenomena, only those that are mundane should be taken as objects of insight meditation and not those that are super mundane. The reason for this, as the Vasudhimaga says, ordinary people cannot observe super mundane phenomena that they have not yet realized. So, <clears throat> It is hard to recognize, for instance, what the characteristics of a liberated mind are as if, if you're not enlightened. And we can get caught up in the idea that that's what we should be focusing on, that's what we should be looking for. But actually, if you haven't had that experience, then you can't detect it anyway. And so it's not productive. What it leads to is being caught up in thinking. Um, Shinzen, uh, my teacher, can come and go from the, the neurot or the cessation experience and when I ask him about it, he tells me to look for something and that just focusing on that will lead to the cessation experience. But I can't detect the thing that he's talking about, so it isn't a helpful instruction. So in the beginning of practice, um, what's useful, uh, and as you move forward in practice, to really be focusing on the, the things that you can already experience. And um, I think Shinzen uh, used to uh, say that when you come to practice and you're just beginning, uh, your resolution is not very good. You can't see clearly the things that you need to be able to look at. But as you practice, the res resolution increases. It's like changing the um, lens on a microscope. First, it's, it's 
at a high level, and then you get more and more into the subtleties of experience, more and more directly in touch with what the sensing experience is like. And that's really all you need to do. You don't need to conceptualize or spend time exploring. So maybe in the perfect world there would be perfect understanding and perfect practice, but in an imperfect world it's definitely more productive to focus on practice than it is on understanding uh, the concepts of this. Supermundane would refer to experience that's available to people who have been uh, enlightened. The illusions can only be eradicated by observing mundane phenomena and not by observing supermundane ones. For example, if a person wants to level the ground, they must remove places that are too high and fill in places that are too low. Doing so serves the purpose of leveling the ground, but if the ground is already leveled, doing so serves no purpose. Among mundane phenomena, beginners cannot meditate on highest jhana, neither perception or non-perception. It is so extremely subtle, even the venerable Saraputta was unable to observe it directly. So although they are mundane, sublime types of consciousness experienced with the attainment of jhana cannot be observed if one has not attained jhana. When I first started practicing, um, Shinzen used to describe the conversations that people had about uh, advanced states of meditation as state envy. Mm-hmm. <coughs> the, really what was being driven was this, this mind's desire for entertainment or the mind's desire to, uh, for social ranking in, within the group. Um, if you haven't had a jhanic experience, then you can't observe the quality of the mind uh, as it transforms the sensing experience into the thing that you've, uh, um, you make it into. Is everybody aware that the sensing experience and the thing that you make it into are different? Not the same thing. Um, one of the things I... Uh, uh, when I look around the room... The walls are solid, the ceiling is solid, the floor is solid, everything is in focus, everything is detailed. Um, And as I move my head around the room, it looks like a solid world. But this is not the sensing experience. This is the thing that my mind has made the sensing experience into. And it can make it in many different ways. Um, If I do a lot of metta and I look around the room, everybody seems... um, beautiful. And if I'm angry, everyone seems dangerous. If if I'm sleepy, it's hard even to to have much uh, experience of of people. The sensing experience and then the thing you make it into. We want to really, in this practice of focusing on the mundane, push into the sensing experience and let the rest of it just Uh, happen without too much attention. Um, In the case of 
sensual phenomena, one should only note the obvious mental and physical phenomena. One should not note vague objects by imagining them based on scriptures. To confirm this point, the Vasudhi Magas says, even among distinct mundane objects, one should make effort to contemplate objects that are obvious and easy to observe. Um, I, I think that in some sense this talks about striving or this uh, need to speed up. Um, where are you at? What can you easily observe? You don't need to, to observe everything. You just need to uh, observe enough of what's happening so that to get into a rhythm of obvious and easy is a, it's a good idea. It, it cools out the intensity of striving or craving that can arise in your practice. Is that making sense? Mm-hmm. Can you help us a little bit with um, the seductive nature of happiness being the goal? Why that should be avoided? Is it because happiness is an active no, no, I don't think it should be avoided. I think what happens is um, that in the beginning the, the, the urgency is to relieve the suffering and so you apply practice and, it, and it's good at that. It, stress is easy for a meditating mind to address. And so once you find the, the way into resolving stress, um, you, I think what uh, arises is a sense that that isn't enough. That, that simply having a life where you're able to resolve stress isn't enough to be uh, satisfying in a deep way. What is a deep way? Um, in, in a way that allows you to be happy. So then happiness arises on the horizon and and you move in the direction of happiness. What makes you happy? Um, for me, it was the ability to uh, express um, myself authentically in the moment as I experienced it in relationship to my, my own experience internally and also with other people. Um, when you, uh, depending on your conditioning, that will be easy or not easy. Um, if you've been uh, held and adored and cherished as a child and encouraged to explore what's meaningful to you, then that, then it should come pretty easily for you. That those all of those uh, spontaneous, uh, authentic expressions were received by the people that were taking care of you, and so you you learned an ease in that. But if that wasn't what happened to you then you, you've learned to restrict it and to present something inauthentic in order to get the care that you needed. And to unwind that will push you into the sadness of having to have been inauthentic and also into the terror of abandonment if you are authentic. But if you can come through that enough that you actually begin to express your authenticity um, and you find people that like that and are delighted by that, then you can come into a place of easy happiness. But I think that if you come into a place of easy happiness, you'll discover that that, that isn't enough. 
and that in the distance you'll see freedom. And then you'll move in the direction of freedom, and then if you can get freedom, I think what you'll find is that it is enough. And that sense of striving that may have driven you in, in your life, even in happiness, is, is, is relieved. But from a place of stress, to, to see all the way to freedom is probably not possible. But from happiness you can see it. And I think if you look at the, it's a kind of a bell curve of people who come to practice, at one end of the bell curve is people who hardly function and, and suffer greatly and are really just trying to get engaged in being alive. And then everybody in the middle of the bell curve is so in engaged in just the conventional realities of our culture that they don't see a need for uh, practice and then you get onto the other end of the curve and people have done very well in, in the world and very well uh, and find that they're still not fulfilled still not happy and so you have that two ends of the bell curve that come to practice in the west um, very different motivations. One end is trying to get into the game and the other one has played the game really well and it, it still didn't provide that sense of meaning. <clears throat> we're, we're humans and, and we like to have a sense of meaning. What does our life mean? What does our actions in the world mean? Do you find that you go to a job that doesn't provide meaning for you and so it's uh, hard to get yourself to go. It's maybe you have a, a family and a child, and so you you think that you do that in order to f to take care of the child, and that provides the meaning that's necessary for you to to do those other things. But if you haven't found meaning, then a lot of those things that we we are required to do in our culture are going to be hard to do. Mm -hmm. What is the freedom? That um, the all, I guess the freedom that I'm talking about would be able to, to, to drop into cessation or neuroto whenever you want to and then fully manifest the sense of self and then when you don't need it simply drop off into cessation again. That would be the ultimate freedom so that you can just come and go from solid to flowing to solid whenever you want it. If you touch into uh, um, neuroto or cessation, as you come out of it, there's this huge blast of, I like to call it limitless compassion. Um, have you noticed not having that capacity that compassion can somehow uh, be hard to come by? Imagine if you could have a limitless amount of it whenever you wanted and uh, how that would free you up to be uh, extraordinarily generous in terms of your distribution of it. Um, you know, I, I like to uh, talk about it as, you know, we, we work really hard to eke out a few drops of compassion and then we can get very stingy around the distribution of it because it's so hard to come by. But then could you imagine turning on a fire hydrant and jamming a box under it and just having the compassion fly everywhere, uninterrupted, that would be the difference between free and not free. Um. So does that compassion bring an elevated type of happiness or different? 
can you be free to be happy or unhappy? So it isn't a sort of clinging or a desiring to be one thing or another. How good are you at losing things? Might be another way to talk about it. Can you go all in, fully engage, knowing that nothing lasts and that you're going to lose it, and then when the time comes to lose it, can you just let it go, or do you find that there's some clinging that comes? Do you find that you're aversive to going all in because you know you're going to have to lose it and you don't want to suffer that? Um, so what you do is you restrict your going all in. You lose it anyway. This is, this is the kind of delusion that we get into. We don't want to engage fully because we're going to lose it and we, we all at some level know that we're going to lose it. Nothing is per- permanent. You've figured that out already, right? <laughs> um, when I was in Myanmar this last trip, um, and I should preface this by saying in Myanmar the life expectancy of a male is 64 and the life expectancy of a female is 66 I'm 64 I found over and over again I was the oldest person and it was disconcerting and increasingly disconcerting because in a culture where there are people who are older than you are you have this natural sense that you could live longer and it just comes to you. You look around and there are a lot of people who are older than you, which means that you're likely to live longer. But when you're in a place where you're always the oldest person and everyone's quite a bit younger than you, it begins to dawn on you. Or at least it did to me. It began to dawn on me that I'm old. And in this country, I'm as old as most people get. There's no after this moment. And it undermines that sense of false security that this is just going to go on and it, it's, it's confrontive after a while in a way that I, I rarely have that here how is that for you since yeah, since well, you're old <laughs> and, and since 70 um, it's been profound right? because when you turn 70 it's really obvious that you're old and then 71 and then 72 and it's like, you know, there's a class here about a year to live. And that's where I am. Right. That's just where I exist. Mm-hmm. I haven't taken that class, but <laughs> my mindset all the time. It's very great. Oh, good. Yeah. It makes me happier because I get how limited it is. Mm. And that I can't afford to be unhappy. Or if I do, I'm, wa- I'm being wasteful. Right. Yeah. The moment so, is gone. Yeah, and it's not happy enough. It's um, kindness, caring. It's it's a whole bunch of not just Hollywood happy. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> 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 but I'm very often the oldest in the room. Right. Yeah. Here too, not just in in Myanmar. Yeah. 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 No, and it. It's quite... Anyway, I, I noticed, that, and I, I think you've probably heard me comment on it many times while I was there, because it was so startling. Um, 
to be in Myanmar for a month and maybe see five people that are older than you. It was kind of alarming. <laughs> you don't want to go all in because you know that you're going to lose it and so you reserve yourself from going all in. And you lose it anyway. But then you don't get to have the experience of it. right? So that the thing that you've lost uh, by not going all in is the only thing that you can prevent from losing, which would be to have the experience of it. So you really do want to, to, to be free to then go all in, knowing full well that it, it will be lost and there's nothing that you can do about that. So then you're, you're free to say the thing that you need to, to say, uh, to engage, to express uh, all of those things that you're talking about, the kindness that is. Um, and you, when you get into that place where you really understand this at a deep level, you know that there's nothing that you could reserve anyway. That if you don't use the kindness in the moment that you could have used it, the moment will be over and you won't ever be able to use the kindness in that moment anyway. So that the illusion that you can preserve something by withholding is actually not even true. You don't get to use it later. There's no keeping it. The moment is over and, and anything that you could have done in that moment is also lost. What is... Um, what, what is... I'm just sort of playing with this notion that since everything's gone, why not just be apathetic? I mean, what's the point of going all in? Uh, if you go all in, you have the experience of it, and if you don't yeah, go yeah, all but, in... But then you have the experience, but even then that's gone. Um, Ultimately, you're gone. It feels so. better. <laughs> I, I want to accept that. But I'm, just, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. I mean, you can, you can hold yourself back from going all in because of the fear of losing it once you get it, or you, you could be like, yeah, but... So, here we're at this fork. In one direction is nihilism. Nothing matters because nothing lasts. Um, and certainly you can go do that. I, I don't recommend that you go do that, but it's certainly a possibility of doing. Um, and then uh, what is the quality of the present moment in that path? And then what is the quality of the present moment, which is the thing that we do have only if you go into the path of engagement? And I would, I would argue that the quality of the present moment in, a, in an engaged life, uh, for me, is preferable to one that is disengaged. I'm to agree with you. But, uh, and I'm sure working towards that. <laughs> but I got to think that there's some freedom to being a nihilist and some sort of. Uh, And you're, you're certainly free to think that. <laughs> I can't, I can't, it's not like I'm trying to think that. I just came up. So. Right. Um, how did drug addiction work? For, for those of you who tried it. <laughs> um 
guess my experience of it is that it becomes so painful, so unbearably painful, that that really I just wanted to kill myself. I think that's where that ends up, at least it did for me. So, I'm going to give you some instructions on focusing on mundane phenomenon in a traditional or kind of conventional way of instructing in uh, Mahasi Karnaka Samadhi or noting practice you would simply let your attention be drawn to wherever it's drawn and then know that that's where your attention is and then soak in and attempt to have the sensing experience of it one of the things the neuroscientists taught us is that the sensing experience almost all of the time is already decided by the time it enters consciousness so you know it uh, the empirical understanding of it and it also already has the inferential attached or you you explore into the the quality of the ultimate reality and the conventional reality has already been associated with it it's very hard to uh, in a in a Householders practice just coming into a meditation center to divide them, so maybe don't try to do that. In a traditional way of noting uh, that Mahasi instructed, you just note everything that you're doing, everything that's happening, that your attention is drawn to, and remember it's sort of obvious and easy is what we're, we're going for in terms of this. I like to talk about this in a see-hear-feel modality that Shinzen developed because you don't have to fret about what to label it, what to label the experience. It's divided into these broad categories which are obvious and easy. That's one of the things that I really like about it. Um, If you were sitting there and trying to figure out a more subtle distinction or to create a name that was specific to the action that you were undertaking, it's easy to get engaged in thinking and then pulled out of the, uh, the actual exploration of empirical uh, sensing rather than uh, into the conceptual. So the C-label refers to all visual phenomenon. So most of the time when we're doing Vipassana, our eyes are closed and so we're talking about internal visual experience so um, most people experience a mental screen um, where imagery is projected onto it related to memory planning and fantasy it's somewhere around the eyes Um, Shinzen and I don't know where he gets these numbers will say that 70% of people are auditorially inclined and 30% are visually inclined so if you're really heavily auditory in, in your internal experience, maybe you don't notice the visual stuff so much, but um, you can sensitize yourself to it. In addition to the mental screen, there's a way of knowing how the body is currently positioned in visual thinking. It's called proprioceptus. It's a kind of feedback between sensation in the body and a visual representation of that. There's the body's location in the current environment in visual thinking. So if you look out and then close your eyes, you'll often notice an after image of where the body is located and that that internal imagery is often available. There's an image reaction to local sensation. So you feel something in the foot and the mind generates an image of the foot or any other part of the body. 
And then there's often an image reaction to exterior sound. So you hear a sound and there's a visual response to it. Any of these, and if you decided, if you found that you were sleeping and you wanted to open your eyes to energize the practice, any external visual experience, all of that is the category of C. Pretty clear? If you hear something in the outside world or you hear the internal auditory thinking of the mind, that's auditory experience, and the label for that is here. And if you have any felt sense of the body, either related to gravity, temperature, respiration, circulation, digestion, the interaction with the world, or emotion in the body, then that would be the category of feel. So there's three categories. If your attention is drawn to a visual experience, it's see space, know that you're in see space, and then see if you can detect the sensing experience. If it's auditory, that's here. See if you can detect what the quality of the sensing experience is. And then if it's in the body, any felt sense in the body, that's feel. In a noting practice, you can also label. So noting is simply to know where your attention is and soak in, and labeling is to create the word that corresponds. So the three labels are see, hear, or feel. If you uh, want to do that, it's, it can be useful because it's a concentration booster. So your attention is drawn to a visual experience, you know that it's visual, you soak into the sensing experience, and then you generate the word see in auditory thinking space. For most people that auditory thinking space is inside the head between the ears or actually at the ears. Same for here, no need to label the labeling and uh, if it's in the body, feel. Is that making sense, those instructions? Um, Then what we're going to do is a double noting. So what is the quality of the sensing experience? This is the second foundation or second pasture of mindfulness, the Pali word for that is Vedna. It's often translated in English as feeling tone. So first note for sensory clarity, then note what is the quality of the sensing experience? Is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Most sensing experience, as it turns out, is neutral. So, uh, hearing is often neutral unless the sound is loud or sharp. Seeing is often neutral unless the, it's bright. Uh, feeling in the body, not always neutral. but And then after some minutes of meditating on double noting, we'll triple note. But this is the quality of mind. Are you wanting what it is that's happening? I'm sorry, are you not well, craving aversion unconsciousness? Here we go. <clears throat> craving is wanting something that isn't. So that you're in the experience of the present moment and you notice that the mind is inclining toward things that are not happening. That would be craving. Uh, You're in the experience of the present moment and you don't want what's in the the present moment. That would be aversion. Or you notice that you get caught up in thinking. That would be unconsciousness. And then if you can just be in the experience of the present moment as it unfolds moment by moment, that would be equanimity. And noting the third foundation, I like to note wanting for craving, not wanting for aversion. If I find that I've been caught up in thinking and lost the object of meditation, I'll say thinking and come back. And if I'm able just to be in the quality of the 
the experience of the present moment without needing to go anywhere, I would call that peace. So we'll do a period then of triple noting. Is that instruction pretty clear? All right. And we will do that. Hmm? Yeah? Um, why do we label thinking unconscious? Um, well, unconsciousness is being drawn into thinking. As long as you're aware that you're being drawn into thinking and don't go, you haven't gotten to the place of unconsciousness. It's after you've already lost the meditation and are in thinking that you've become unconscious, which is after the fact. So then you recognize that that's where you're there and you just note it and come back. If you were still in the meditation knowing that you're being drawn into unconsciousness, you haven't crossed the line into unconsciousness. Um, deepening your practice is moving to the Hill Street Center. Um, so next week's class will be the last time it's here, and then after that it'll be on Tuesday night at the Hill Street Center. We will send out a notice about that. Uh, if you're already on our email list, um, then you'll get it. And if you're not and you would like to be on our email list and get the notice about the upcoming classes, uh, put your name and email on here, anybody? Want it anyway? In in Santa Monica. Is the whole center moving? No, just just uh, deepening your practice. Just you. Just me. So, um, how was that? Mundane enough for you? <laughs> <laughs> A neutral piece. <laughs> uh huh. Um, in the philosophy, are we are we born with these things and these gifts that we then have to reattain as we practice? Do we come out of the womb with these freedoms and then quickly lose them? I don't know. There's two schools of thought. One is that you're already enlightened. There's just a lot of weeds in the way. And the other is that you have to cultivate uh, the experience. Um, the reason that I like to teach Mahasi is because it's, it's, he teaches the progress of insight and that was pretty much what happened to me without me knowing that that was a map. And so it just, it's, I don't have to translate anything, it's pretty much just how it unfolded for me. Um, but there are, there are lots of maps um, you know, I I haven't really ever found much in the Tibetan practices, but many people do that. I haven't found much in the Zen practices, but a lot of people do that. This practice has always felt, uh, always made sense to me. And when I've tried the other ones, they didn't make the same quality of sense. So I guess that's also part of your conditioning that then primes you for this. How do you apply it to everyday life? Yeah. So you become aware of the uh, empirical quality of the sensing and what you make it into. That would be the... And then you're, you're aware, as you get sensitive to this, the mind state 
that filters the way that you make the sensing experience into something so that you can begin to calculate whether your perception of things is accurate or whether it's distorted. As a rule of thumb, I would say that when you're on your own or focused on some work that doesn't involve interaction with other people that you should push into Vipassana and run a technique all day long. And when you're engaged uh, with someone else that you should be pushing a metta technique. Uh, The one that I like the most for interacting with people is to say, may I be peaceful? And then to say, may you be peaceful? May I be peaceful? So you're going back and forth, engaging in this uh, inner and outer. In the Satipatthana, the, one of the descriptions is to uh, focus on the internal experience of self and then the external experience of other people and then to notice the interaction between them. If you were to talk about this just in terms of mind states, you'd have an awareness of the sensing experience and what you make it into You'd have an awareness of whether it was accurate or not, what you were making it into. You'd have an awareness that your mind state has an effect on somebody else and their mind state has an effect on you. Uh, you'd have a, a, an awareness that there's an emotional regulation quality that happens in the interchange with other people or that your mind state can affect your internal emotional experience. All of those things you can be aware of and uh, adjusting if, if um, you get spun out by something. But being really aware of the mind states comes from this because you sense something and then you make it into something and between the sensing and the making is the mind state. If the mind is angry, do you notice how the world is different than if the mind is happy? The sensing experience could be very similar. So yes, all day long, running a technique just in case. (laughs) So um, this is deepening your practice, so I'm always advocating ways to deepen your practice. One way to do that is retreat practice. Um, If you haven't been on retreat, I I would uh, suggest that you consider it. Um, ATS has a retreat coming up over Memorial Day weekend, which is a four-day retreat out in uh, Joshua Tree. I think Noah and Vinny are teaching it. Um, so it's a, basically two sitting days and two travel days that's how retreats kind of go if you haven't been on a retreat maybe a short retreat is a good way to go and get a taste of it it's a, it's a four foundations retreat so they'll, they'll be talking about the same uh, uh, pastures that I was talking about if you'd like to do a longer retreat and you don't mind traveling a little bit I'm doing a, a, a retreat in New York uh, starting Memorial Day weekend and continuing for a week after. I teach a Metta Vipassana retreat so that uh, you come in and the first four days of the retreat will be Metta and the second four days will be Vipassana. I find that if you really bring the mind into a place of kindness that when you go into the uh, Vipassana exploration it's much easier to do and and um, all of a lot of the difficulties that can come up for people in the first few days of a Vipassana retreat where there hasn't been metta practice don't come up because people have come into a place of kindness for themselves. 
I am also doing a summer retreat in New York, in uh, California, up by Sequoia Park at the Seven Circles Retreat. It's a week-long uh, retreat. Again, will be the Metta Vipassana format. Um, but this is, um, I haven't uh, taught a retreat there before, but it, it's supposed to be in the Redwoods and really quite beautiful. So I'm, I'm big on beautiful retreat centers. Um, I think it makes it easier to do walking meditation than in a parking lot, but I suppose you could do either. This is uh, J- July 3rd through 9th. So. Um, you know, I think it probably is, but it, um, let me find out and call you. You could get, a, I think that you could get your own uh, cabin there. There are little cabins up there. Anyway, take a look at this. Uh, um, we have early bird specials for both of my retreats. Uh, the one in New York, uh, there's a 10% off until uh, April 4th, and then this one is, I don't know exactly when. Anyway, my website is metagroup.org. I put some flyers out there for this retreat. Uh, Take a look if you want. Um, But I really do urge you to get on at least one week-long residential retreat this year so that you can get your practice in. Uh, ATS is going to have an uh, East Coast retreat in August, and I'm going to have a winter retreat in December. And I think that that's all of the retreats that are currently scheduled. Um, I'm also an ardent advocate of meditation centers, including this one. Um, One of the things about uh, practicing meditation is that it can upend a lot of your conditioning, which can be difficult to manage. Um, And it's useful to have people who are also meditating um, um, available to you to help you navigate this what better place to meet them than at a meditation center, right? If there's no meditation center to come to, where would you meet somebody who is also meditating? Where would you find people to help you with your practice? So it's important that we have these places. You may think that because uh, we've been here for so long that um, we're in great financial shape, but I can assure you that the finances of meditation centers are always precarious, and we rely on your individual acts of generosity each time you come. We've crunched the numbers. The uh, suggested donation here is $15, but it is an individual practice of generosity. So uh, examine whether that feels generous or not. If you're well-resourced, maybe it doesn't, and you want to give it a higher level. Maybe that's just fine. Maybe it's too much, and you need to give at a lower level. But each time you come, consider giving Uh, so that we can keep the lights on and the doors open. If you would also be so kind as to put the chairs back and the cushions away, that's also appreciated, and I'll see you next week here. Thanks.